Hello, friends. I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. On today's show, we have a special announcement for you. Then we're going to talk about recent media we've been consuming and then get back to our old stomping ground of discussion by talking about The Owl Escape by N.K. Jemison, Pretty Deadly Volume 2 by Kelly Sudeconic and Emma Rios, and then finally discuss the recent movie Arrival, which was adapted by a story from Dad Chiang. So it looks like we are back on track, right? Yes, we are. We were slightly derailed or derailed a lot by the recent events. The garbage fire of 2016. And one certain Donald Day Trump. Oh, God, you said it. I'm never saying his name. I'm just going to call him 45 forever. Is that your strategy for coping? Yes, that is my one lone strategy for coping with our president-elect. Just never refer to him by name because his name is his brand. You are very clever. I like that. Well, we're not actually here to talk about politics. So let's get into the regular episode. We're happy to announce that our annual survey is now live on the internet for all interested space bees to take. Our annual survey helps us consult listeners on some changes we're considering for the future. And let's be real, we also do it to get wrecks of media. And also to hear nice things. <laughs> nice things about us, yes. You can, you can leave us nice things about us. That's true. Yes, yeah, say nice things, please. We all really, really need to hear compliments. <laughs> if you do have criticism, you can leave them. If it's a really serious criticism, we'd rather get an email about it. That way it doesn't get lost in the survey responses. So just keep that in mind when you're leaving us feedback. There's also a project that we're doing everybody can help with, but you'll need to take the survey to find the secret door. The survey will run until December 31st or January 1st, 2017, depending on what part of the globe you're in. And we're really excited to hear from you. But I swear to God, don't, you literate assholes, break the bell curve on my book question. <laughs> don't do it. Or I'm going to come after every single one of you who read over 300 books. You are totally still reeling from that, aren't you? Yes. Like, it's been a year and it. Get over it. Come on. No, I'm going to come for you and I'm going to come for your libraries. been a few weeks since we've discussed stuff that we're reading and watching, so I thought we would catch up on some media. Anna, what have you been reading and watching? Well, reading very little. Apart from what we're discussing today, I just haven't had the time because I'm doing so much work on editing 
and project management at the book smugglers so it's been difficult to find time to read plus i have visitors and they've been here three weeks and whenever i have visitors i just engage in conversation and have dinner on the table which is so weird to me but it's been nice but again i don't have a lot of time for myself so the only thing that i have watched in the past couple of weeks is planet earth uh, the second season of Planet Earth on the BBC, narrated by Sir David Attenborough. It's been brilliant this season. Oh my God. Like I watch every single episode and I get so excited and just so anxious. There is one, there's this little iguana running on a beach full of snakes. God, I was screaming my TV. It was amazing. If if you can't watch, this show is just superb. It's so tense. It's so much fun. It's amazing. And then before that, when I was in New York briefly visiting Thaya, I watched Fantastic Beasts and Went to Find Them, which wasn't that good. I guess while we were watching, it was okay-ish. But then it was just, it's very... It's unremarkable. The characters are boring. It lacks something of the magic of the original stories, I think. It's maybe because they are all adults. There are already magicians and wizards as opposed to children getting to that. From that point of view, it's a little bit... Uh, and I didn't like the female characters that much because, again, they were boring. They were just boring. I thought the movie was boring a little bit, to be honest. And then also in New York, I ended up watching the entire first season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I adore. It's just completely unlike what I was expecting, given the title. But it's a lot of fun because it's a musical. I don't think Renee would ever be able to watch it because of secondhand embarrassment. No, I would never be able to watch the show. Because the things that the main character goes through, oh my gosh, it's just so cringeworthy. But it's really clever. It's very feminist. And, you know, one of the main characters is Filipino. And Thea is Filipino. And she's like, this is like an accurate representation of a Filipino family. The best one I have ever seen on television. And the songs are really good. I love this show. I cannot wait for season two to, go, to come to Netflix. And I literally just watched those three things. So go on and tell me, what have you been consuming? I saw Moana. It is super wonderful, and it is about women helping women solve problems created by thoughtless men. It's the greatest. The songs are really wonderful. You can really hear Lin-Manuel Miranda's touch in some of the songs. And then, I mean, well, literally in one case, because his vocals are in one of the songs. I cried to the whole fucking thing. No joke. It was, as someone put on Twitter, like straight Niagara. The whole running time of this film. Oh my god, I can't wait to watch it. If you have a relationship with your grandmother that's strong... Oh no. You need to take a whole box of tissues into this movie. Just go to the store and buy one of those little travel-sized boxes that you put in your cup holder of tissue and just take it in and put it in the cup holder in the theater and just prepare. This was a movie that I had some feelings about. I mean, obviously I'm going through some stuff right now because my grandmother has Alzheimer's. So because of all that, my viewing of Moana was very fraught. Next, I read Babylon's Ashes by James S.A. Corey. Are you watching The Expanse, the TV show? Not yet. It's on Netflix now, the whole thing. It's not on Netflix here. I'm pretty sure it just showed up here. 
No, yeah, because I added it to my to my list to watch. Well, I checked it two days ago and it wasn't there. It's supposed to be on Amazon Prime soon, so you can watch it if you have an Amazon Prime account. The series comes back in February, and I like the series a whole lot, but the books are pretty much my main jam because they've got more depth to them right now because the show is lacking. It's just too new to have a bunch of world-building depth. And the sixth book, which is Babylon's Ashes, just came out, and it is wonderful, and it's heartbreaking, and it's very dramatically set in space during a war taking place over the whole solar system. And I liked it a whole lot. All my favorite characters are back. And even though I have to deal with the fact that the series is, you know, anchored around this one main dude who is just so boring. He's, I'm sorry, he's just, he's so fucking boring. I still really love all the supporting characters. I've recommended the series a few times, but it's really hard to get people over the hump of the first book. It's very noir. And if you don't like noir stuff, you're not going to like the first book. If you don't like putting up with boring and or creepy male main characters to get to like awesome main characters, you're not going to make it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Have you read these books? No, I haven't read those books. Not yet. I really want you to read them, but I also know that the first book is like slogging through a swamp. The women in this narrative, it's not the greatest. <laughs> I just had Kay, Kay Taylor Ray on Twitter. She just read Leviathan Wakes and she was like subtweeting the series on Twitter. And immediately after she subtweeted the series, I was like, I know exactly what book you're talking about. And my friend Susan also was like, I know exactly what book you're talking about. I'm like, oh, God. Was that the one when she, w- she was like, is this other people who told me to keep reading through this book? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, she's subtweeting me and the book. Yeah. The second book is what got me hooked on the series. Not the first. The first was okay, and I like space opera, so I went to the second because a friend told me to, a friend, Justin Landon from Rocket Talk. He was like, read the second book. So I read the second book, and um, I fell in love because the characters in the second book are amazing. You have this 60-year-old Indian lady who's involved in the UN, and her name is uh, Christian Vasarala, and she is fantastic. She just spends the whole time just swearing at people and talking about dicks. And calling the male main character that I found boring a dick. And then you have this Martian Marine whose name is Bobby. And she is amazing. She's so great. And I just love the series so much. I just want everybody to read the first book. And then go read the second one. And then you can forget the first book exists. All you need it for is background. You're like, <laughs> Renee, 500 pages of background, really? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, 500 pages of background. Go for it. So basically what you're saying is that this book, the first book is like the thief. That's a really good way to put it, yes. I also read Gemina, which I finally knocked out because you yelled at me about it in Raptures a whole lot. Please tell me you loved it. Yes, it was a super excellent follow-up to Illuminae. I love how the books really use their conceit, which is that the books were made up of chat logs, description of videos, and other documents. This one had a journal for the main character, and the art was by Marie Lu, and it was super cute. And right at the beginning, right, at the beginning of the journal, there is a bullet hole. Mm-hmm. This is not a spoiler because it's right at the beginning. And then when you realize what it is. <sighs> yeah, I really dug this one. And now I just need to wait another year for the next one. It's fine. I'm f- it's fine. I'm fine. This is. I can totally wait. But if Amy Kaufman wanted to send me an early copy, you know, I probably would be okay with that. 
uh, along with a couple other thousand readers. Obeliskate by N.K. Jemisin is the follow-up to the excellent and Hugo Award-winning fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. The Obeliskate picks up right where the fifth season left off. So if you have not read the fifth season yet, this segment is going to be full of spoilers. It's also probably going to be full of spoilers anyway. It's totally going to be full of spoilers because I need to talk. So if you have not read the Obeliskate yet, what are you waiting for? Please read it. It's excellent. Please skip the segment and go on to the next one and come back when you've read the obelisk. See you later. Anna, did you like this novel? Of course I did. I think it's maybe my favorite novel of the year. I really liked it. It's different from the fifth season in terms of uh, narrative because it changes a little bit from being all about assume. And now you have a second person uh, being followed, her daughter. So the narrative here is split between the second person, a narrative that follows Asun, and then third person that follows Nassim. So that's a little bit different from the first book. And the first book also was kind of like spread out. It was across different places and across different times in, in the life of this one character. So it felt like bigger. And this one is more condensed because... Both characters are staying put in one place during this one time. But I felt it was deeper than the first one. I mean, the first one was pretty deep, right? It got into really complex politics and politics of oppression and of identity. But this second one, I thought it was deeper in a more personal way for both characters because it was them realizing who they are and who they are in context and then learning that there are different ways of being who they are. There's actually three points of view. Oh, it was Hoa. Yeah. No, and, and Shafas as well. So there's four. But I felt that both Hoas and Shafa, they were, like, subsumed. I didn't get that at all because of the stuff that they're keeping away from Asun and Nasun, which turns out to be a whole lot. I knew it was Hoa who was narrating things from the first book. I just knew it was him. What I found sort of horrifying is that Nasun goes with her father, even though he is a murderer. Multiple times he tries to kill her and you see her trust and love in him just get eroded over time. That part of the novel hit me really hard. Take out, you know, the earthbending and magic and and the apocalypse and this is my life. Oh, Renee. I'm sorry. N.K. Jemison really just wrote this particular narrative about a father and daughter and the daughter wanting the father to love her for who she is instead of trying to make her something else. Ow. Ouch. Let's be real. The conceit that N.K. Jemison chose to not trick us, but to lead us to empathizing with this, you know, 40-year-old black woman by showing her as a child, as a young woman, you can't do that in the second book because the surprise is already gone. So you have to change how you do things 
And I think in this book, the way that she tilted the narrative to show Asun learning how to not hide, not slot under the radar, to own who she was and what she could do was really nicely done. And maybe take up the mantle of hero as well, but more like anti-hero, I think, because in the end she does some an atrocity, doesn't she? It's life and death, and it's really life and death, and they are so powerful, the two of them. Both of them do atrocious things in this novel. She kills everybody in the temple. That was horrifying to me. And I don't think there is any excuse for any of that. I would excuse Essun's use of her power because Essun and her community were being attacked. Yeah, but she didn't have to expand her power to destroy the entire city that is on the other side. But she killed, you know, children. But she's going to pay for it because she's turning into stone. So what does that mean? I knew that Alabaster was going to come back, right? Because he wasn't being eaten. He was being transformed. Because whenever they mentioned magic, I thought about quantum physics, especially with regards to the stone eaters. Because whenever they say that they don't, they live forever because when they kind of like die, they just transform into air and then they, they are put back together. And I just, I just think it's all about atoms. What do you mean, Alabaster? Alabaster died. Alabaster is back. Where? In the end, when she was like passed out, almost passing out, she says she looked at, at this new person next to Auntie Moni that had alabaster eyes that she could more or less identify who he is, and then she passes out. That's alabaster. Are you sure? I am so sure. And then she says that he looks at her like he could remember who she was, but not quite. So I'm thinking he's alabaster in a different form. And I think that's what stone eaters are. They are all, I mean, we know that they were used to be humans, but I think they were origins that pass on and become stone eaters. And I think this is why Hoa is waiting for her, because now he's going to wait for you to also transfigurate or transform into a stone eater too, so that they can be together, because I am so there for this train. All right, you ship them. Oh, yeah. Everybody's terrible in this novel, so why not, right? There was this really pointed moment in the novel where she used the obelisk for something that was personal. She, she learned how to do the obelisk gate, and then she used it for something small. And that's being human. And I, I don't know. I only know that N.K. Jameson said the other day on Twitter that she thinks that the third book is not dark enough anymore. I'm terrified. This is not going to end well. Well, the series is about the apocalypse, basically, happening over and over. Did you think it was going to Would you think it was going to have a happy ever after? Well, if they bring back the moon, they're going to fix the earth. The plan is not going to be very happy. Bringing back the moon does not necessarily ensure that humanity survives. Oh, no, it doesn't. Of course not. It comes down to whether the people with power in this book are going to let humanity survive. What do you think is happening with Nasun? She's using a different type of magic. Yeah, she's tapping into the threads, right? The same thing that Essun is doing. Yeah, but it, Essun, it took Essun way, like, way longer. Yeah, because she's so young. And the fact that she's so powerful kind of like makes me wonder who her father is. I wonder if her father is an alabaster. Maybe Essun was pregnant because she's 10 years and it's been 10 years since alabaster disappeared. Are you having another theory now? I am. Wouldn't it make sense? She's so powerful. She's node-like powerful. 
And that's what happened to most of Alabaster's kids. I think I don't care enough about who her father is. No, I don't care. I don't care either. But I mean, it's a theory that I have. Doing that just takes you back to the first book and it doesn't move the narrative forward. But it might explain how she's so powerful. I think she's just powerful because she was not trained by the fulcrum. The fulcrum was made to control and they trained them in a certain way to make them powerful, but to also control it. So they don't teach them the things that would make them truly terrifying. Whereas Alabaster went in and just taught himself and Nasun didn't have any of that benefit of the fulcrum benefit in quotes, I guess. Asun tried to teach her when she was younger and she learned basic fulcrum stuff, but as soon as she was away from Asun's basics and as soon as she had sloughed off her father who wanted her to be cured and she was in a place where she could learn unabated, she naturally started using the super advanced stuff that the fulcrum never wanted them to know. Mm-hmm. And so I think it has much less to do with parentage and maybe more to do with how you're taught. I think maybe it's both because the fulcrum did have the breeding process in which they got the two most well the most powerful people to breed right because they wanted to do that controlled thing to bring babies into the world that were more powerful that they could control well eugenics is never the greatest thing ever but that's what the fulcrum was doing so what do you make of shefa i don't know because of course there is this whole redemption thing so but i don't know why they did why did they have to kill all of the origines in the temple if they are breaking away from that they are breaking away from the fulcrum they are breaking away from those orders why would they still kill the surviving ones where they were being useful to the community is it because you can't break away from your conditioning? I don't know. So I, I, I'm not quite sure what I make of him. It was policy for when there was a season for them to kill all their... Yeah, but he's not a guardian anymore. Not officially. There's no fulcrum. Well, they were, they were, setting, him, they were setting themselves up as a new fulcrum to continue the process. And there's some politics that I'm not quite sure that the book addresses. And I think it's probably going to have to come in in the third book. Yeah, because I have so many questions. That I, there are some things that I just don't understand. But why they, kill, why they were supposed to kill the people during a season is just so they couldn't breed wildly. That's exactly why they couldn't do it. That I understand, but the fact that it was Shafa who was supposed to be breaking away from that. So whose orders is this following? So so he still believes that, so that But there was no proof that he was going to kill anybody. No, it was it was Nasun, yeah. And she did it not on purpose exactly, but not accidentally either. I mostly think that was a that whole moment was a political thing where they were assessing each other out maybe like you asked me what do i make of him i'm i'm saying i don't know what to make of him i don't think i don't know if i trust him i don't know if i should be scared of him i'm not sure if i buy his redemption i don't know who he's working for what's his true end goal i think he knows who nasun is and that's going to become an issue in the third book but i don't know in what way it's going to become an issue because as soon we'll never trust him again with good reason but nasun trusts him and we see the ways that he gains her trust. Which is the same way that he gained everybody's trust. Because that was kind of like the relationship between him and the young Asun too. Yeah, he gained 
Nasun's trust in a totally different way than he gained Nasun's trust. I don't know how you compare those two at all. I mean, what I'm saying is that he knows how to manipulate people in both scenarios, both when he's evil by breaking the hand, but also being a father figure, and then by doing the other way. Nasun says that she would allow him to kill her if he thought that was a good thing. That's manipulation. He knows how to get to her. I don't trust him. I don't believe his redemption. What confused me was the whole thing about whatever's in his head. Yeah. I think we see something related to that when we're in Crestrimo and Tonki is messing around with the geo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think it's a tiny obelisk. It's a, it's a piece of an obelisk. That really confused me because that complicates whether this is a redemption narr- narrative for Shafa. Is it a redemption narrative or has something gone terribly wrong? True. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I, I guess everything is going to happen in book three. And then there's Hoa. I've read the preview for the third book and I don't know how accurate it is. I'm not going to spoil it here. But holy shit. This book reveals to us that Hoa was the stone eater trapped in the obelisk that as soon as Sinite uh, used at Aaliyah. He came back as a small child to, let's just put it this way, manipulate her. I know. Oh my god, it's so bad. And I don't trust his motivations now either. No, of course not. Before, I was like, oh, he's trying to save her life and protect her. And now I'm just like, wait, wait, soon, back away. So much of this book is about trust and people manipulating other people with power through their feelings. Nasun does that to her father, too. She manipulates him through his feelings. She understands what he expects from her. And then she manipulates, the, she spends the whole year manipulating him. I'm going to call him daddy because that's what gets to him. But internally, she doesn't call him dad at all. It's just, it's just really interesting. So this is what I'm saying that it gets to the heart of these characters, I think. This is a very sad series. It's such a sad series. What the fuck? Why do we like this? I don't know. Why do we like this? I don't know. It's just really well done. So how many space beats do you give this? Five. Oh no, I think I would give it five too. We agree. Yay. Pretty Deadly Volume 2, The Bear, by Kelly Sudukonik, Emma Rios, and Jordi Belair is the second volume in the fantasy western comic from Image. We read the first volume of this. Was it last year or earlier this year? I feel like it was last year. Well, I don't remember anything about the first one. I didn't either, Renee. So I'm, guess- I'm guessing where you're going, I went too. Is it, is it, was it very confusing to you? I had to go look up a summary of the first one. And once I read the summary of the first one, I was like, what was the fucking point of that? <laughs> what was the point? What was the point of the first volume? All I could get was that the point of the first volume was to establish a character as death. Yes. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll go into this volume and this new volume, it'll be fine. All right. I gotta tap out of this series. It's making no fucking sense. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hate to be that way, but I gotta I gotta leave it alone. I'm done. This is my last volume of the series. I like the visuals. I like the ideas, but it's so very confusing. I don't think it's oh, I'm so sorry, Kelly the Conic, but I don't think it's well executed. The art is really beautiful. The art's great. 
But it's like the artist slips me some kind of drug and it gets in the way of the story and I can't follow what's happening. Yeah, it's very difficult. There are really clever things. But it's, it's, the problem is that there are too many characters and they are very similar in, in what they do. It's like, why is there a reaper of fear all of a sudden and a reaper of death and also a reaper of, I don't know what, and a reaper of vengeance and a reaper of hope and a reaper of this and a reaper of that? There are too many reapers. Like, you only really need one. So uh, that didn't bother me so much, like, following the characters, but it was, I don't understand anyone's motivations. I don't understand what anybody's doing. I don't know. I I can't really tell you. I don't understand them either. I mean, this whole comic was about... A woman is dying, and she wants to see her son before she dies. And for some reason, Death, who I guess right now is being played by a character from the first volume, decides to send somebody to get him and bring him home, and they're fighting a Reaper who has claimed him as part of the war? Yes, because it was the Reaper of War controlling World War One. So there is that context as well, the, the, that historical context. The Reaper of War went really crazy with World War One, and things are getting out of control. And there's this one character who is so important because he's Sarah's son. And Sarah's one of the main characters from the first volume, too, that helps Sissy. This comic is just too confusing. It's just too confusing. I don't think it's well written. I'll just be honest. I don't think that anything about this is well written. It's incoherent. Yeah. I I wouldn't disagree with you. It's trying really hard to hit this mythological tone that it's just not hitting. And because the scope is just so... The scope that the writing is trying to go for is so large, it's not meeting it. And it just feels like a hot mess. It needed like eight more edits. It it needed some, some more coherence. I agree with you. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. There are incredible things about it. I like that it's about World War One, and there is this whole thing with friendships in the trenches. It's heartbreaking. You have all the gas, and you have all of that. You have elements of mythology from all over the world being introduced here, but and but maybe I don't know a lot of them. So maybe that's something that we are missing too because we don't have all of the context that maybe we are supposed to have. But at the same time, it's kind of like we're not supposed to be this lost when reading a comic. But I was. I thought it was very confusing. I, just, I don't understand most of it. There are, I, I thought there were too many disparate characters. I still don't understand why she would send two different groups of people to try to help the same person at the same time. So she sends um, the Coyote and the Raven, but also Sissy and Alice at the same time to help this guy. But they seem to be at odds with each other. Why? That's my whole question about this whole volume. Of, this whole volume. Why? I would read the third one though. No, because... no, no! Oh my god! Please, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I have tapped out of the series. I'm not. I don't feel smart enough for the series. I don't feel smart enough. No, no, stop that! It's not your fault. It's not about you. It's definitely about the. Group. Let me make it about me, Anna. Give me a break. No, I no, no. No, ma'am. And it's really sad because I really do like Marias' art. But I was like, were you on LSD when you drew this? What's happening? I don't know. And so basically, I'm just I don't knowing throughout this. How many ways could you say I don't know? Let's find out. It's the sort of thing that I would have loved because I like mythologies. I like the setting. I like World War I stories. It, It feels like it should be big enough. 
to feel like momentous, but no, it just feels very confusing. And I don't know how many times I can say that either. So we just better cut to the chase, I guess. When I rated this, I gave it two stars. I was going to say two and a half, but someone on Twitter said to me... Did you let somebody guilt you? I did. Someone, one of our kind listeners said that they feel like they are our space bees. And whenever I give a half space bee, I'm cutting you all in half. And I felt so bad. So I'm not giving half space bees anymore for me. I'm going to go with a three. You got more out of it than I did. I was so confused. I think my favorite part of this whole comic was the fact that the kid on the battlefield kept the rat. Oh, yeah, he did. He saved it. Or he tried to. Everybody else is like, what the fuck are you talking about, Renee? Maybe they will find out and become as confused as we are. I wish somebody would just come in with a plot explainer. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm giving this to Space Bees. The story is incoherent. The art is a mess. Calm down. I mean, I get this is a whole mess. There's too much information, yeah. I I mean, I get that this is a mythological and there's like some magic happening and there's shapeshifters. But chill. Some of us are not, like, we don't have art degrees. But I feel like you shouldn't need to have an art degree to read a graphic novel. This is a very niche comic. At the end of it, there are a couple of really interesting conversations that both of them have about creating the story and doing the art around it. Do you have that in your volume? Did you read those? Yeah, but I didn't read it. No, I was so mad. It was interesting. Kind of like gives an idea of how much thought went into this. But still... This comic is not for me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe other people will enjoy it. If you're a comic fan who likes fantasy western comics and World War One, maybe you want to get this comic a shot. Yes, and if you like it, maybe then write to us what this is was all about. Thank you. <laughs> Arrival is a 2016 movie starring Amy Adams and, unfortunately, Jeremy Renner, and it is adapted from a short story by Ted Chiang called Story of Your Life. Anna, I really went into this movie not expecting anything big, and I walked out flabbergasted and overjoyed. What did you think about it? I loved it. I had no idea what it was about. I mean, apart from what the trailer told me what it was about. I had not read the short story that it's based on. What a movie. What an incredibly beautiful movie. But also, can we just go back just a little bit to your intro and why, unfortunately, Jeremy Renner? I don't like Jeremy Renner. I find him gross. I mean, I guess his role in this movie didn't annoy me that much, but whatever. It's fine that they cast him in this instead of any other white guy who wasn't a sexist dick. Oh, man. Basically, I've heard too many news stories. Featuring Jeremy Renner being dismissive or outright offensive towards women, I found him really gross. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry to ruin your day. Could this year get any worse? Probably, now that you said it. Thanks for jinxing everybody, Anna. The global community thanks you. (laughs) I'm so sorry. This movie was beautiful. The cinematography was great. Amy Adams was excellent. 
I'm continually surprised that they did a science fiction film with a woman at the center and it was so good and they didn't fuck it up. Also, a movie about aliens with a main heroine that is not in any way, shape or form connected to the military or with politics. And it's really everything is about language and communication. And she saves the day because of language. I thought that was so powerful, especially in the context of our times in which language is misused so much. We just don't call things by what they are. And there has been so many post-truths, quote marks, and falsehoods that are spread, which make communication so difficult. So this movie could not have come at a better time. I feel like it's important because of that as well. But it's very different from the short story. Which I have not read. I actually went and bought the short story collection. I did too. But I haven't read it yet. Although I do tend to like Ted Chiang's stories a whole lot. So I don't know what happens in the short story versus the movie. I do think that somebody told me that the military stuff is not present in the short story. No, it's not. They added it, which makes sense because you need to have like acts and drama in a Hollywood film. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense in the context of, of a movie. Absolutely. And I don't think it detracts from the heart of the story, which is still the same. Yeah, even though they added the military stuff in the movie, it felt really unnatural, and I really liked how they ended it. Absolutely. It was a, such a surprise how it went. I didn't realize how hard it would be to discuss this film without spoilers, but there you go. So I think if you haven't seen Arrival yet, you need to flash ahead and not let us spoil it for you, and go see it if you can, not only because it's great, but because of supporting women in lead roles in science fiction is important. It took me forever to figure out what this movie was doing with time, even after they explained it. And my first thought upon exiting the theater was like, holy shit, this is going to be a movie basically about like brain time travel. Anna's going to love it. I know, right? <laughs> it's like, you've got Anna, you've got to go see this movie. It's got brain time travel. It's simultaneous time right it's it's not continuous it's not linear anymore it's like a spiral or, or like a circle because everything happens at the same time just like the language itself in the story i feel that's explained better than in the movie the way that the language works because you can't read because usually when you read in your language you go from one word to the other in their language that's impossible that's what the story explains. I'm not spoiling it too much. You don't you don't read in a linear way. You have to learn to read in a non-linear way, in the way that you already know what's gonna come when you start reading. And there is no start and no end. So this is why it makes you open to experience time in a non-linear way. For me though, the question that it raised for me is that the fact that she knew what was going to happen with her daughter, and she's still kind of like, I'm still going to do this. I don't know if I would be able to sustain that loss. But the fact that you know that it's already happened, it's kind of like it's about fate too, because you can't escape. But I totally guessed what was happened. Like halfway through the movie, before it was revealed, it was like, because at the beginning, you, f you feel like it's in the past, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. What happened with the girl? It was like, no, 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 that girl has not yet been born. 
Maybe I read too many time travel stories. I think you do. I think you spo- you spoil yourself in the movie because it wasn't it wasn't a spoil though. It was like a theory that came true, and it's like I felt very smart. So that was great. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even get it. Even though they were when they were explaining it, I was just like, "What? What's happening?" I'm just, I hate time travel. Fuck time travel. <laughs> What I really did like about this movie was like the aliens and how we interacted with the aliens. Also, I cried. I cried. Mm. I cried. Oh my god! How would you not cry in the end when the aliens saved them? She went back to them afterwards, and she's like, "Hey, where's our other friend?" And he was like, "He is death process." I was like, "Oh god, death process." So you know what he's saying, but it's. Different enough just to be gutting. If the alien had been like, oh, he died. Yeah, we would have been sad. But because the language is like, he is death process. It becomes something else. And way more gutting and horrific. Especially if you think that for them, the process starts with their knowledge that the person's gonna die too. Yeah, they already know. I don't know how you would live like that. This movie was just about time and about controlling your life and choosing how to live even if it hurts oh my god i don't think i would be able to it's just beautiful it was just a beautiful movie and it was just so well done it was just so pretty too there's just so many scenes in this movie that are just beautiful almost all the scenes i found the most beautiful were the ones where amy adams is like in them i've always liked her in this movie i'm just like oh my god why why isn't Hollywood giving you all the roles? She was so good in this film. She did such a great job. She plays all types of characters really well. She does that type of thoughtful, quiet character, but she makes she, she also plays the loud, obnoxious character really well too. I know there were other characters in this movie, like Jeremy Renner is there, unfortunately, and Forrest Whitaker was also there, and he was great. I really liked him. But, like, everybody else kind of fades away for me because Amy Adams was so excellent. And just how she inhabited the character and how she communicated a lot of the stuff that was happening to her, like, with her body. Especially when she was anxious and scared, too. I really highly recommend the story. It's different, but fundamentally the same. So how many space bees are you going to give this? Five. I'm also giving it five. You have the Fangirl Happy Hour seal of approval for Arrival. So if you're debating going to see it before at least theaters. Yes. And I actually, if you think about whether you should read the story first or watch the movie first, I watched the movie first, read the story later, and I thought it complemented the film really well. And I think because the film is so beautiful and so big, I think it's worth going to it uninspired. So I would say... Watch the movie, then read the story. It's time for this week's recommendations. Anna, what do you got for us? I've got a graphic novel called Phoebe and Her Unicorn, a Heavily Nostrils Chronicle by Dana Simpson. It's 
the answer to all of your ailments. It's about a little girl who one day walks into a unicorn that is so enamored with herself, staring at her own reflection on a lake, that she's just standing there. So she gets caught, and then she has to grant a wish. And then this little girl wishes for the unicorn to become her best friend. And the unicorn is called Marigold, and she's so full of herself. But she loves the little girl in the end, and the little girl and them have adventures in which they go around just talking to each other about life. And it's kind of like Coven and Hobbs, but with two female characters for a change. And it's cute, it's positive, and it's everything that we all need right now, really. What about you, Renee? What do you recommend? In a fit of nostalgia, I went back and reread some of my favorite Inception fics. One I ended up spending a few hours on was a series of fics by Jism called Wherever You Will Be, That's Where I'll Call Home. It's about Arthur and Eames checking up together in a, in really subtle ways and tackles the everyday stuff like running a household and working a stressful job and having to deal with each other's families. But it does it with the assumption they're all still working in dream sharing. So it's like criminals do nesting. It's lovely and sweet, and I thought it held up really well, even after all this time. This verse is also the one that contains one of my favorite stories about Ariadne. I highly recommend it if you're looking for some really long fic to read in Inception Fandom. that's a wrap for episode 64 Anna thank you so much for recording with me today well thank you for being opinionated with me on the internet we would really like it if you would fill out our annual survey and you can do that by visiting bit.ly slash fha survey 2016 our show's art was created by Ira and you can commission them on tumblr at justira.tumblr.com our music this week is by Boxcat Games, broke for free, and our instrumentals are by Cheeky Music. The links to the tracks are in our show notes. You can find us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcasts. Give us a follow. We'll be happy to see you. You can keep up with Anna and all her adventures in book smuggling by hitting up book smugglers on Twitter. And you can see Renee being feisty in real life on Twitter too, at Renee. And as always, Facebeez, thanks so much for listening. See you next episode. Bye.